Hey guys and girls, welcome to another episode of Molecule to Market, where you'll go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. As always, I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Terry Novak, who's president and CEO at Salubrent Pharma Solutions. What an absolute honor it was to speak to Terry. Bit of background on how Terry and I met. We were both at DCAT in New York recently, and about five different people made introductions to, to Terry and I on, on numerous occasions. And by the end, we were laughing our heads off about uh, how the universe was uh, was trying to bring us together. So obviously, I asked him if he fancied being a guest on the podcast, purely based on what a charismatic guy he was, but also 40 years of experience in the space. So he seemed like a, a very, very uh, suitable guest to have on the show. He has spent over 40 years in the space and he comes on today to talk about what he's learned about pharma, pharma, biopharma and contract services in general. I love how he talks about marketing and some of his kind of key marketing techniques in terms of communicating specifically with your internal audience as much as your external audience. And this is something that I preach with my clients all the time as your internal audience can carry a message much more effectively to your clients and prospects than just pure play marketing materials. Really interesting thoughts from Terry around how orphan drugs and rare disease will drive uh, different batch sizes and manufacturing capabilities in the next few years and how uh, one area is going to really impact all of us in the next three to five years. So listen out for that. For background, Terry has got really extensive CDMO, kind of C-suite level uh, experience serving in numerous capacities. Um, he served on the board of directors at Pernix Therapeutics in Ireland, Persevia LLC, American Red Cross North NJ Division, which I'm guessing is New Jersey, Pathion, Frontline Pharma, Curaxis Pharma, and is currently on the board of directors at Sally Brent Pharma Services and Minutemen Life Sciences. Operationally, he's also served as the CEO of Teda Pharmaceuticals, COO of Pernix Pharma, and president of Norwich Pharma, and also president of Pathian, as you can gather, pretty extensive uh, experience. So as always, thank you so much for listening to Molecule to Market. Um, if you get a chance today, please share this episode with a colleague. Even better, go on to your app store and give us a nice, kind rating. Enjoy today's show. We are proudly supported by Zymewire, which is a leader in actionable sales intelligence for life science business development professionals. In fact, thousands of life science BD professionals start their day with sales signals from Zymewire. And because you listen to Molecule to Market, you can have a free go at the platform, just go to tryzymewire.com. That's tryzymewire.com. Hey, Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ram. I'm uh, looking forward to speaking and appreciate the invitation. Not at all. And uh, for the introduction now, uh, our listeners would have just had a bit of an insight into how we met numerous occasions <laughs> at TCAT recently when uh, I think everyone we met independently 
said we should meet so i'm i'm very grateful that you're able to to make the time so you know so quickly after dcat and terry just to start off with it would be great to give our listener a bit of an overview about who you are and and what you do but also just love to hear some of your background story you've got um an incredible uh, i'm going to say four decades and you're going to tell me off because it's going to make you sound old but from what i can see you've got the best part of 40 years of experience in the life sciences space and so it'd be great to walk through the roles that you've had your career journey to date and ultimately where you where it's got you to where you are today sure sure yeah i it, it's funny i uh, the four decades always makes me sound so much older and uh my wife reminds me i still act like i'm 35 so i guess that's <laughs> So, uh, uh, and I'll never change. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I started in the pharma industry like a lot of people. I was um, a pharmaceutical sales rep back when Bristol Myers Squibb was just Squibb and uh, spent 15 years there in sales roles, then sales management, then a regional sales um, VP. And then, uh, you know, kind of took a big turn from there. And I went to a startup company called Innovex, by the way, was based in the UK in Marlowe. And they were looking to expand into the United States as a contract sales organization. So I joined them as their third employee. And within two years, we went from three employees to 3,000. Another year, we were 6,000. Um, we were sold to Quintiles, uh, and at that time, we were the largest contract sales organization in, in the world. We were supplying full-time contract sales organizations to anywhere from small biotechs to the largest pharmaceutical companies, the top 10. Um, so it was my, kind of my foray into the service industry, you know, going from, you know, the customer's point of view at Bristol Myers Squibb to the service industries. That was my first foray in the service industry, and I loved it. Um, then I was recruited to go to DSM in 2001, and uh, DSM had just bought a facility in Greenville, North Carolina, and it had a few customers, not a lot, and I was brought in as their head of uh, commercial operations to literally build um, a CDMO business in, from that facility. And uh, we did that very nicely. Um, we had some very nice business from two of our largest clients, GSK and Pfizer, but we needed to build out more from uh, different customers. Had and still have they, um, one of the best sterile manufacturing facilities that any CDMO can have um, resides there in Greenville, North Carolina at DSM. Um, and we really focused our efforts on bringing business into that facility because at that time, 2001, it had one customer. <clears throat> it eventually served most of the, the large biotechs and a lot of the other pharma companies. So we really built DSM from a couple of customers into, you know, what it became later and merged with Patheon. Now it's part of Thermo Fisher. So um, I became president at DSM. And then soon after, um, I joined Patheon as their president of North America. Um, I had about 2,700 employees, 10 manufacturing facilities, and global business development responsibilities. Uh, and Patheon was a challenge because I took that position and left a great position at DSM, mainly because um, the opportunity to have a larger footprint, 
the opportunity to have more global experience on the business development side. Um, so um, a lot of changes had to be made in North America. A few facilities in Puerto Rico had to be condensed. Um, other things needed to be standardized. A lot of Lean Six Sigma programs to make uh, the, the facilities more um, efficient. Um, so I, I, I spent 90% of my time on the road, um, which uh, eventually took a toll on a few things in my life, including my marriage. Um, so uh, I, um, I, I ended up um, moving on, um, took a year off doing some consulting to because I had a non-compete. And then uh, I joined Doug Drysdale, who was uh, the CEO uh, at Norwich, well, Alvagen, which owned Norwich. And uh, he, in all honesty, convinced me to come back into the CDMO business. I was kind of not going to do it. Um, we struck a great relationship together. By the way, he's a Brit as well. Um, <laughs> I feel, I feel, I feel like there's a friendship that's going to develop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got good I mean, taste in people. <laughs> yeah. So you know, um, Norwich had a facility in Norwich, New York. It actually, if anybody listens to this, uh, Norwich Aspirin, which was probably the top-selling aspirin for 50 years back in the day, was made there, but obviously not anymore. Um, and really it was to build a CMO business there. Um, Alvagen used it for some of their own products, but really we wanted to build a CDMO business and, and we did. Um, we added very extensive development services. We added the ability to do scheduled products and um, really built that team uh, out at Norwich. Um, Doug Drysdale then moved on uh, to become uh, chairman and CEO of Pernix Therapeutics. Uh, I joined him there as his chief operating officer. So we were a publicly traded small pharma company. Um, we acquired Imitrex from GSK. We acquired another product from another company and kind of built that company, kind of built that company up um, to, to more, not just a cough and cold company that was when we, we, uh, when we both took it over. Um, and then a few acquisitions or tried acquisitions kind of put a, a little uh, too much debt on the company. Um, and I, uh, I, I was commuting again from North Carolina to New Jersey and um, had been remarried and just it, it came to a point where, OK, um, I, I think this might be time to, to do something else. Doug went to Tedder to serve on their board. Uh, Tedder's a small CMO, solid dose based in Rhode Island. And he called me and asked me if I wanted to be his president. So there I was the third time working for Doug. Uh, and um, that was really a turnaround. Um, they were a generic company, owned their own Andas. But, you know, we really wanted to be more of a CMO. So I came in and sold off the Andas. And then, you know, tried to you know, really build up the, um, the solid dose contract manufacturing business with uh, the relationships that I had developed. Um, I became their CEO the middle of 2020. And Doug moved on to a company called Cybin as their CEO. Um, and no, I didn't join him. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so... Um, I, I just came to this realization, Ron, that I've been growing companies for other people. 
and it's time for me to do it on my own and have control and do it like I want to do it. And so I, uh, out of the blue, uh, a young entrepreneur up in Washington, D.C. gave me a call. He had talked to someone who knew me, almost like you and I met at DCAT. And they said, you need to talk to Terry. He's the guy that could help you execute this grandiose plan you have. So that was, um, you know, the middle of uh, 2020. I was helping them develop a business plan, which was very grandiose. And I said, we need to, we need to focus more. So we established the company at uh, the end of 2020. And um, it's Salubrant Pharma Solutions. We're a technology-enabled CDMO. Currently, we're offering comprehensive CGMP analytical services to both clinical commercial stage pharma and biotech companies. But the next stage of our evolution is flexible, state-of-the-art, sterile fill finish. Um, that was the original business plan for, for Salubrant, um, raising $50 million with just a business plan, you know, most most of the investors I know said, "Listen, you know, we don't do pre-revenue. You know, you get some revenue, and we'll we'll, we'll back you." So we started this um, analytical services business. Um, we became CGMP in November of 2021, and uh, we're based in Canapolis, North Carolina, and we're, uh, as I mentioned, just comprehensive. Uh, um, clinical uh, cl uh, analytical services for clinical commercial. We've got, you know, um, three walk-in stability chambers, ELISA testing for biologics and antibody companies. And um, now I'm really turning my attention to really trying to raise the funds to build out our sterile manufacturing facility focused on these small batch uh, companies like cell and gene therapy, orphan drugs, things like that. So it's uh, it's been a different challenge. Um, you know, most of the time I'm out trying to raise money. I've got a great staff running the analytical services. So uh, that's, uh, of course, DCAT was great finally to be at and get a chance to meet folks like you, but also all my old friends in the business and uh, see, see how we can move to the next level of cyber. Well, what what a terrific background uh, you've got, and I think like me, our listeners probably thinking, wow, you know, you know, BMS and uh, Quintiles and Patheon and DSM, and obviously some well-known smaller CDMO companies. You know, what an incredible career that you've had to today. And I suppose looking back, I suppose has that kind of varied experience given you the kind of holistic view that you need to then be able to start your own company. Cause I, you know, I only know the exact opposite of you. I only know how to start things. I don't know how to work for anyone else. <laughs> so I can imagine going to work for someone else is quite difficult. So I, I, I suppose I'd love to hone in on how the, you know, being there and founding a company and what have you learned in, you know, relatively short space of time about that journey and, how much of those previous learnings have you been able to bring into a relatively small but fast-growing uh, organization? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And it's, you know, I, I tell my wife and some of my friends, I wish I would have done this 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I was happy building, you know, building things for other folks. You know, I think what it really, what I have focused on my entire career in the CDMO business is what I call the customer experience. And 
I think I, I got to hone that strategy and, and execution of it, you know, from the first time at DSM and then into Patheon, where we really had to ramp that part up at that in those days. And then, you know, some of the smaller ones and, and where, what it, what I've learned over that time and what I've honed over that time is it's all about the people. So you can have the greatest services in the world, but if you don't have the right customer experience, and that goes from what your marketing message is that's carried all the way through consistently to your business development person to now who, who takes over the project when it comes in and, and the folks that are delivering it. So that's really how I focused. It's, I, I always, I've done some interviews. People go, well, you know what's your management style? What do you think? Listen, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. I'm not an op <clears throat> operations expert. I'm a very business focused CEO. So I surround myself with people who are more intelligent than me in the pieces that I know have to drive the company, um, whether that's VP of operations, VP of analytical, analytical development, you know, all those pieces you have to put together and have that team. And then you have to continue to build the team, continue to focus on, on the right metrics. Um, uh, one thing I think real, Patheon really taught me was, um, de develop more from DSM to Patheon was, was metrics. Um, you know, what I learned from DSM that I apply to what I do now is they're one of the most financially prudent companies and, and just fantastic um, education I got there in, in, in really honing my financial skills. Um, Patheon was, Hey, you're running a big organization. Customer experience was a driver. So, and then going to small, I think, you know, when I finally went to Tedder and realized, you know what, this is really small. I got 50 people and I used to have 3000. Um, and by the way, managing 50 is more difficult than 3000. <laughs> <laughs> but it showed me, you know, you can have such a greater impact in a smaller organization. And that's kind of, I put all those things together and said, you know what, I, I can do this on my own. And so, you know, what I learned from Doug Drysdale, which has probably been the biggest positive for me in starting my own company was how to raise money, how to pitch. Because I used to do the pitches with Doug. He was the CEO. I was the COO. My job was to tell him how we were actually going to execute the strategy. Um, so, I, you know, all of those things combined have really got me to this point where, you know, if I can get the right people on board here with me to, to grow the company and particularly move it to the next level of sterols, um, we can be very successful um, within the next three to five years. Mm -hmm. no, that's really great to hear kind of how you've taken all of that experience and it's almost yeah, almost feels like your destiny to do this at some point in your in your life and you said something really interesting about kind of customer experience and how to make sure there's a consistent message through an organization i was going to actually ask you about because you've done quite a lot of sales and marketing roles and given my marketing background i was just curious to hear what had changed you know in 30 40 years you know between then and now but i suppose more specifically what i think might be quite useful for our listener one of the things that i see is is a challenge with exactly what you said there which is how do you take a simple message and make sure that everyone in an organization knows that 
that kind of message um, as opposed to everyone singing off completely different hymn sheets. So I'd be interested to get your take on kind of what things and what techniques or strategies did you use to, um, I suppose, get a consistent message, you know, from internal stakeholders to external stakeholders that, that I suppose everyone was singing off that one, one same hymn sheet. Yeah. Another great question, because I, I, I've often said to folks, you know, when like when I came into DSM, I'd never been in the contract manufacturing industry in my life. Um, so we we came in and I said, I don't want us to look like every other CMO that's out there. I don't want the marketing to be big, shiny steel tanks and, you know, all these things that are not personal, that don't resonate with a potential customer. You know, if they're reaching out to us, they assume we have the capabilities and the equipment and things. I wanted it to be about people. So the first thing I always told folks is you come out with a marketing strategy and this big launch you're going to do out into the market. But, you know, you also have to launch internally. So everything that you see externally, whether it's on a website or whether it's you know print material that's being direct mailed, also has to be on the inside of the company. So on the walls, on everything, you, you, need, you need to launch internally before you launch externally so people understand why you're doing it. Because the thing you realize is most of the, you know, a lot of these folks have no idea. Why, well, why are you doing it that way? You know, I'm the operator in, you know, the lab or I'm this. So it was a big launch internally all the time. You know, um, I, I did, I did. I think the one thing that helped that I can tell you is uh, I hope other people do it. Um, every quarter I meet with the entire company, whether it was DSM, Patheon, Norwich, it didn't matter. And DSM and Patheon, we had three shifts. Well, that third shift needs to hear the same story. The first and the second shift did from me as the president. So I spent a lot of time at every facility I've ever had doing town hall meetings for every shift and whoever was there that day to say, okay, here's where the company is. Here's where it's going. Here's how we're going to get there. And the here's how we're going to get there always revolved around the customer experience, but our message, you know, this is why. So the thing I always say again is you have to tell people the why. It doesn't matter if it's, just, if, for mar if it's marketing and sales, you know, plan they have, but if you're doing something that's affecting everybody company-wide, tell them the why. Don't send it out in an email blast, you know, or a memo. Tell them why you're doing it. And, and I think that is really what drives the customer experience internally because they understand why you're doing it. Um, and, and, I, you know, I'm telling you this because I heard this from people um, at all of those companies at one time or another after a, 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 you know, a quarterly review or something. They'd say, you know what? No one ever told us that. That's really, okay, now I get it. Now I see why you're doing it. I do customer satisfaction surveys. I ask them one question. Would you refer us to one of your colleagues who called you and asked you, I need a CMO, who would you recommend? That's the only question I ask. And then it's why or why not? You don't need these long, you know, involved you know, uh, questionnaires. That's all you want to know. If they say yes and they tell you why, great. If they say no, they tell you why, you know. 
I used to, I always do customer. I used to do these, it was, it's kind of hokey. I used to do five smiley faces was the most the customer could get if they were satisfied with us. I started that at DSM. I was in the lunch line and somebody taps me on the shoulder. I turn around and he said, Terry, I want to know why Pfizer only had two smiley faces. <laughs> and I said, well, he goes, I work on the line that manufactures Pfizer's biggest product. I want to know why it was two and not five. That's when I knew I had something. That's when I knew, okay, this is resonating with people. They're taking ownership of that. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's little things like that that you might think are hokey and they're not. But, you know, so, so that's kind of, you know, how I've done it. And I, I'm applying that to the company now. I mean, we only have five employees, but you know, I'm at the lab at least twice a week. We just launched our ad campaign internally yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to have great. fun with it. We were doing videos and they're happy. And so, you know, I'm starting five and within two years, we'll be up to if the sterile facility is built out in the timeline, we think we'll have 80 people in two years. Wow. And, and honestly, for any of our listeners, you know, capture that last five minutes from Terry because it it actually encapsulates so much that I have, you know, that I find myself saying to clients around the importance of communicating internally before externally. And it, it really amplifies the message when you get your internal comms right. And then that's taken uh, to market. So I think, you know, in addition to the other things that Terry talked about, you know, in terms of communicating the why and having those regular kind of, it's almost, it's almost Terry, like over communicating. I know, you know, this, there's a, there's a phrase in a leadership training that I say, you know, you tell people seven times and they'll, they'll start to resonate. So you have to just keep banging the same drum and saying the same thing because people don't tend to memorize and actually just being there and being present and giving them the time, I think is super important. So some, you know, absolutely terrific advice in there. And obviously you talked um, and you just mentioned at the end there, which kind of needs me, leads me neatly on to, I suppose, Sally Brent's intended focus on the sterile's this morning I was working on, uh, I'm speaking at CPHI in, in Philadelphia and uh, not to, uh, you know, destroy the kind of <laughs> the illusion of, pod of podcasting, but this might be out around the time <laughs> CPHI is out, so depending on the timing. And I'm currently working on that presentation. It'd be great to obviously see you again in, in person. And one of the, I suppose, trends that, that I'll, I'll be talking about is, the move towards smaller batch sizes, I suppose more orphan drugs and personalized medicines and just some key trends around, I suppose, driving the growth in sterile's. So I suppose without stating the obvious, is that why that's the space for you? Because obviously you've had experience of, um, you know, OSD and your you small molecule, large molecule and your multiple dosage forms and everything in between. So I, I, am I correct in thinking, I suppose, the key market tailwind, you know, around the development of biologics and smaller batch sizes, et cetera, hence why you're focusing on the sterols? Is that is that a fair assumption? Yeah, it, it is. And, and I t the other reason, you know, oral solid dose is you know, unless there's special delivery mechanisms or things, oral solid dose is on the CMO side has become somewhat of a commodity. 
you know, look at the amount of generic products, you know, there, you know, if a generic company comes to you as a CMO, it's very difficult to give them the cost of goods that they need to make a profit. So, you know, you're, you're competing then for the brand products with every other oral solid dose CMO out there. So it's, um, and, and, you know, there's still a whole lot of C, uh, you know, I mean, the, the amount of uh, drugs that were approved in 2021, there were 50 NMEs approved. Um, and uh, there were a fair amount of solid dose drugs in there. But to the point you made, half of those new approvals in 2021 were orphan drugs. Um, and, you know, a fair amount of them were sterile. So it, it is really the, the market that's driving. It's also, though, it's a, it's, There are a lot of uh, costs, startup costs involved if you're going into sterols, you know, less than if you're going to open up an oral solid dose facility. So that's the challenge where it's like, hey, I need 50,000 square foot facility. It's going to cost me 50 million dollars. So, you know, not that there's less competition on the sterile side, but it's a big investment. So, you know, people think twice um, if, if they're going to add it. So what you're finding is. Those who haven't had the sterols have actually bought a lot of companies, which has driven up the valuations to, you know, I think right now the average is 24x EBITDA, um, which is crazy valuations. But, but yes, the driver behind this was this. I love, I, I like that business. You know, we grew the heck out of it at DSM. Um, and so it, it's something that I always had a love for, particularly because how many of these drugs are life-saving life-changing. Um, I talked to a biotech company about a year and a half, yeah, about a year ago, maybe a little longer. And he said, Terry, I've got a product that saves premature babies. It's an injectable. Um, you know, it's, it's, I don't need a lot of vials for this. Um, and I'm waiting nine months to get a filling slot at a CMO because I only need, you know, 20,000, 30,000 vials. So what's happened then is these companies are getting delayed getting into clinical trials, which means everything is delayed in their process to eventually get a product approved. So that really hit me. And in doing a lot of research, you see what COVID did was it drove sterile manufacturing companies to put in large expansions for volume, lots of volume, whether it was for vaccines or treatments. And you didn't, you still don't have a lot of companies out there that are focused on this on this small scale, flexible batch. So that's really what drove us. Um, you know, you look at the growth in the sterile market, it's crazy. Um, and it's not going to stop. And by the way, COVID just exacerbated and added to the growth that was already there because there were a ton of complex products for oncology and development, biologics, the cell and gene therapy is going crazy and will continue to. Um, obviously mRNA now, because we've had, we've proven that technology that's growing like crazy. So it's, there were 60 new filling lines that were announced over the last year. Um, that's a ton of investment, but also it tells you what's happening in that sterile manufacturing in the CMO marketplace. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. 
We are proudly supported by Zymewire, which is a leader in actionable sales intelligence for life science business development professionals. In fact, thousands of life science BD professionals start their day with sales signals from Zymewire. Because you listen to Molecule to Market, you can have a free go at the platform. Just go to tryzymewire.com. That's tryzymewire.com. I managed to catch up with my good friend, Jim Miller at DCAR and Jim Jim was when we were having coffee together he, he mentioned almost similar to what you said there Terry like a backlog of clinical trial projects that were were delayed by COVID so although a lot right. of the capacity was taken up by you know COVID vaccines which understandably were where the absolute priority needed to go he's he mentioned that you, you're now seeing some of these projects that were delayed in clinic because you couldn't get patient recruitment or you know whatever the challenges because of COVID are now coming through the system. And again, to your point, you've got complex early phase drug products coming through that require that flexible, small scale type of manufacturing. So lots of, uh, you know, lots of tailwinds that are certainly pointing in the direction of, of, of where your business is, is headed. And I have to ask what's, what's been the biggest challenge for you in starting up your own company and I suppose more specifically, what's really surprised you and has been tougher than, than you thought it would be? I could, I'll tell you the biggest surprise um, was there. I, I had not one single potential private equity investor look at the business plan and not agree with the need. I mean, every one of them. What surprised me was that particularly with my background, that they weren't willing to jump in as a venture, you know, a venture capital play because we don't have any revenue. So it was always this, you don't have pre, your pre-rev, we don't invest in pre-revenue companies. How about I find you something to buy? So my response was, okay, there's not much out there to buy. And if we do, it's going to be 24 times 26. So then that means, you know, I can't retire in five years. I'll be dead. So, <laughs> so it was kind of, <clears throat> I think, Ron, that was my biggest surprise was the overwhelming acceptance of the business plan, but then yet the, the but that came after it. So, I mean, listen, I know I raised, like I said, I, I raised funds um, with, with Doug when we were at uh, Pernix and you get more no's than you get yeses. So, you know, it, it's what led me to say, all right, well, I can raise friends and family money and start an analytical services business, which will, by the way, give us potential customers for our eventual sterile fill finish business, but also give us some revenue and show people, hey, we took a plan, we, we executed it, we have customers, we have revenue. I mean, it's not a lot right now because obviously we're growing it. So I think that was... That was the biggest, uh, the biggest surprise to me. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, I'm still out there pushing hard because we'd like to raise our Series A by the end of July so we can get the facility at least purchased and then raise Series B so that we can then start to build out, order the equipment and, and all those other things we need to do. So that was a big surprise. I mean, uh, and you know, I enjoy doing the pitches. You know, I'm a BD guy at heart. But uh, yeah, that, that was that was the surprise. Hard to, hard to get the nose though, right? Even even when you've got as much experience as you have, it's yeah. it, 
yeah. you know, it's it's frustrating, I suspect, given the market opportunity is clear as day for everyone to see. But, you know, it's almost a false economy to go out and buy a facility to an extent right. because you're paying over the odds. However, your speed to market is quicker, so I can kind of understand. <laughs> and there's a lot of money out there. I mean, there's a lot of dry powder um, to be invested. And uh, so I'm... I'm remaining very confident. Um, I've got a couple things um, brewing that are very close to uh, to to getting the Series A. So uh, you know, I do have uh, there are things. All you know, now that we've got, like I said, analytical people are starting to go. Oh, okay, so now now you have something. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, working on uh, a few to try to close, um, and then uh, you know, then the fun can begin. We've covered quite a lot of ground already, and I'm, I'm going to kind of try and wrap up in the next kind of seven or eight minutes or so. But sure. one thing I think I'd be really interested for some of our young leaders listening to the podcast is, I suppose, you know, if you could go back and give yourself, you know, your 25 year old self, some advice, um, especially around developing their career, uh, what what would you what would you have said to Terry? Wow, that's a really good question, man. <laughs> I told you it wasn't going to be easy, Terry. I I, uh, I got you in for a chat, and then I'm fired yeah. some more questions at you. Sorry. <laughs> I, I would uh, I, I would I would say to the real Terry is be 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 patient. Um, you know, don't don't chase the money. You know, it's, <laughs> I, I think you know I made one career mistake and I won't say you know who I made one career mistake that I wish I could take back did I learn a lot from it I absolutely did and can um, can, can can I sorry to interrupt that and you obviously you don't have to go into the specifics but reading between the lines was that a moment where you were chasing the money and yeah. that's that's ultimately yeah no that's a it's a fascinating insight it's one that I I constantly talk about as well. I was doing yeah I mean I was doing very well but I was I literally was made an offer I couldn't refuse and when I went to resign from the position the company I was in my boss actually said that to me he said so you're actually considering staying I said I am and I only want one thing to stay and by the way it wasn't more money and that didn't happen and it was disappointing um, and so I went and, um, yeah, it, it, it's some, so yeah, I, I, think that's one thing. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, well I can justify because my gosh, I, all this more responsibility I'll have, but I, I think you just, and I think you need to trust your gut. Um, and I always trusted my gut and I had a mentor, not a mentor. I had a boss who when I got my first real executive position, told me, you've been very successful by developing relationships and using your gut instinct. And now that you're this executive, you really have to be data driven. And I said, well, I do look at data, but at the end of the day, if it's a 50-50 between my gut and my data, I'm going with my gut. So I think that's some interest. I mean, like I'm, I know there's other execs or people look at me and go, really? But if, if you have that much experience, why not? You know, I mean, if you've, if you've looked at all of the data, which you have to, um, but 
you've been doing it a long time and hey, listen, your gut's not going to be right all the time. Hey, you know what? The data's not right all the time. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, honestly, it's uh, you're, uh, preaching to the converted here, Terry, and I, and I hope our listeners taking good notes here because, um, and you know, one of the things that interesting you talked about data and gut because I, one of my things I always say is if you're, if the data backs your gut, it's definitely the right decision as well. Like, you know, like, you, you know, chances are your gut will be right nine times out of 10, maybe eight times out of 10. But on really, really life-changing decisions or, you know, real kind of key business decisions, if you have the data to back up your gut feel, like, it'll be right. There'll be, you know, uh, exceptional items like there always are, but I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's uh, it's fascinating to hear you. And I, lo- and I love your honesty as well. You know, obviously we get guests on that are reluctant to share their mistakes. And I think, uh, you know, certainly <laughs> most of the content I put in, out in the world, <laughs> my book, my podcast, et cetera, et cetera, are all based on mistakes that I make. And I feel like people learn quite a lot. So I uh, applaud you for for sharing, for sharing that. Well, I think that's great. there's one last one. And I, I had two CEO bosses who told me this, that I was too nice. Um, and that was that I, if somebody wasn't working out or having a performance issue, I always thought of a way to give them a second chance. And there are times when you shouldn't do that. Uh, and you know, it, it, it's not good for the person. It's not good for you as, as, as a boss and, and, it's, I, I understood what they would tell, would, would tell me. And I would say that about 70% of the time I shouldn't have given a second chance, you know? And so you, you waste some energy on both sides. Um, but I still like to be too nice. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, where I slightly disagree with that, Terry is in my own experience, I've, I've done exactly the same thing and I think it's worth it for the 30%. And the reason I say that is I do. Often, I agree. often often that 30% is some of the best people that, you know, certainly in my team, in, in my leadership role, if you like, is I've had doubts about individuals and, and, but, you know, you know, let's give them a second chance. And you're right, most don't work out, but the ones that do work out tend to be really shock you and they're really growing. They're just going through a phase of their own career and life and they often come out at the other end. So I agree and leadership isn't always black and white either, right? It's it's a slightly more nuanced and colored. And so, no, again, great. I concur with you completely. The 30% that work out, I can I can probably name every one of them. I, I, I totally agree. You know, and, and, and I would always argue that, by the way, to my two that had mentioned it to me. I'm like, yeah, I get you, but how about this one and this one and this one who worked? And not only worked, but now has you know moved up within the company. But I think you know what I mean by this. Just you, you do have to have a balance. You know, you can't be in and be this. The, the one thing I remember when I first became an executive at Bristol Myers Squibb was I remembered that position. Most of those folks took themselves too seriously. And and well, you've met me now, so you know me. I mean, well, I'm I think not... that's probably why we got got on because I don't yeah. think either of us take each other to take ourselves too seriously. I'm not your typical CEO. I wasn't your typical regional VP at Bristol Myers Squibb, um, and so you know you don't you, you can't take yourself so seriously. All of a sudden, you got your first big promotion, you know, and you're a VP. It's like all right, 
But think about what you did to get there and make sure that you keep doing that. Because too many times you get in, you're sitting behind the big desk, you got all this, and now politics enter in and you're managing up and you're not managing down as well to your people. And I would give the, the, the biggest advice I hope anybody takes away from this podcast isn't my long career and some successes I've had. It's don't take yourself too seriously. Remember what got you there and, and, and keep doing the great things that got you there. You're going to make some changes, obviously, as you move up. There's different, you know, you got a board, you got shareholders. But for the people that you're, that you're motivating and who are really doing the work, don't forget what got you there. That's a sage advice, and I hope our uh, listener and you guys and girls out there are taking that seriously as well. You know, take it seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously is uh, is Terry's advice. And Terry, final question, because we're, we're almost up on time. time. And you've already mentioned some kind of trends and things like that. But I suppose if there was one trend that the listeners can take away today or something to be mindful of as we kind of progress into 2022 and, and beyond, what, what would that be? Talent. Um, the, 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 especially startups, but also, I mean, there's, there's just um, so many expansions going on, you know, whether it's in the biotech and the companies, you know, that, ser- that we service or whether it's in the CMO and CDMO space. Um, there's, there's a shortage of talent. People can pretty much pick where they want to go. Um, and so, you know, I sit on the North Carolina biotech advisory board. We talk all the time about, you know, how can we develop training programs? Um, you know, I know Greenville, North Carolina has done a heck of a job, um, with folks who are coming out of high school who, you know, you don't have to go to college, you know, you, you, they're training them how to be operators at pharmaceutical plants, technicians, things like that. Um, that's to me, um, when I look at, you know, we're going to have to be bringing on 80 people two years from now, um, some of them earlier, obviously, you know, it's when I'm looking at where that sterile facility is going to be, one of the big drivers is, okay, am I going to be able to get talent there? I mean, you can offer me all you want in tax incentives to go to, you know, some rural area, but can I get people, you know, that will, that, that can, can work the facility? You know, you, you've got sterile operators, you've got a lot of things. So it, it is the one thing that we all should be thinking about. We should be thinking about how do we develop our own folks? If you're running a bigger company, how do you develop the folks that are internal, that, uh, you know, you want to give a bear hug to and make sure they don't leave. How do you put development programs in place so that an operator moves to a senior operator, moves to that director of operations? So it is, to me, what I think is our biggest challenge over the next, you know, three to five years is where are we going to get the talent uh, to, to do it? it? It is the number one challenge that I see at the minute as well Terry and certainly time at DCAT reinforced it and you know <laughs> thankfully I, I saw this coming and started a recruitment business for the CDMO space about a year ago and and interestingly that that business lead candidate or listener will know that I launched a year ago or so um it has been super successful on getting off the ground and it was it was designed to be exactly what you talked about there, which was sustainable talent acquisition, not just one off positions. It was it was almost like building a conveyor belt of always be recruiting and do it in a sustainable way that doesn't 
tick you know your eyes out because you're paying 50 grand for every position or, or whatever it is so i think um no i think that's a it, it's a brilliant point to end on i would say because i think I think it's a battle everyone's having at the minute uh, in in different industries, but specifically in in ours. And uh, Terry, what a what an absolute pleasure to have you on Molecule to Market. It was uh, great to meet you in person fifteen times in in two days. And uh, <laughs> I told my wife that last night. How do, you, how do you get involved in this? I said, well, someone told Ram like ten times you should meet me. I said that was after the first time we met. So, uh, and I'll, I will be at CPHI North America. Yeah, well, let's, let's grab a beer. No, no, let's grab a beer together. And, uh, right. yeah, and, and, you know, for our listener, you know, please get in touch with, with Terry, you know, connect with him on LinkedIn. We'll put everything in the show notes as usual. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, Terry. Absolute pleasure well. to have you on the show. Enjoy it. Have a good weekend. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You are listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.